This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 318. What I have found is the way that I start my day is the way that I will finish my day. I want to create a peace-filled morning routine. So I choose to start my day with peace first. Hey there, and welcome to the podcast, the Read to Lead podcast. That is, it is the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I'm Jeff Brown and believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then intentional and consistent reading is you guessed it, an absolute must. I'm going to help you narrow this reading list and bring you key insights and valuable ideas from today's most successful and inspiring authors. And that author today is a man named Garland Vance. He's author of the new book, Getting Unbusy, Five Steps to Kill Busyness and Live with Purpose, Productivity, and Peace. I'll ask Garland to share about the inhibiting beliefs that keep us trapped in busyness, why time management isn't the solution, how to attain your biggest goals, and lots more. There's a quote early in the book that I think really encapsulates uh, the thinking behind the book, and, and what it really comes down to is that to be successful, to accomplish all that you hope to accomplish in life, it really comes down to decisions. In fact, this quote, uh, as Garland inserts it, uh, finishes or ends step one of his book, which is called Decide. And the quote goes like this, until you're committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creativity, there is one elementary truth, that the moment you definitely commit yourself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help you that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in your favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no one could have dreamt would have come his or her way. That, that quote, by the way, comes from W.H. Murray, who is apparently, according to Garland, a Scottish mountain climber. I did not know of this person before, but I'm so glad that Garland chose to include that quote. That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll find in his book. Garland Vance is an author, yay, a speaker, and a consultant. He co-founded Advance Leadership. Get it? Advance, Garland Vance. Uh, with his wife, Cool, which helps uh, overwhelmed influencers and organizations live with purpose, productivity, and peace. He also serves as a senior consultant with Swaz Leadership. That's a consulting firm that helps maximize organizations through executive development and creating raving fans. Garland's new book is called Getting Unbusy, Five Steps to Kill Busyness and Live with Purpose, Productivity, and Peace. And I'm going to introduce him by saying I have read my share, probably 30 books on topics similar to this, you know, books on productivity, books about doing more in less time, life, work, balance, you name it. I thought there wasn't anything else for me to learn about these subjects, and boy, was I wrong. Uh, Garland, I loved your book. Well, thanks so much, Jeff. That, that means the world to me. The, the thing that impressed me was that I felt there wasn't, again, a, a not, not a lot new to be said about this topic. I was having a conversation with my friend Grant Baldwin a few months ago for the podcast. He wrote a book called The Successful Speaker. 
And going into that book, I thought, well, he's my friend. I'm going to read it. But I've read 15 public speaking books. What else is there? But there were so many new things he brought to the table. And I, f- I feel like you've done that for, for productivity. I'm excited to share this, this book with my community. And it was really difficult for me as I was thinking through what I was going to ask you not to take about two or three hours and cover the book page by page with you on your <laughs> Maybe another episode. Yeah, right? yeah well, I'm going to try not to, to do that. Uh, but uh, let's start with uh, how you define busyness, first of all. I think that's good for context for the rest of our conversation. And why so many of us see busyness as a good thing, even enough to sort of wear it like a badge of honor. Right. So I define busyness as an overcommitment to too many good commitments. Uh, If you think about our lives, you know, if you see a friend in the grocery store or Starbucks somewhere and you say to them, how are you doing? More than likely, they're going to say, I'm doing good. I'm just so busy. (laughs) And when you look at a busy person's life, it is comprised of all kinds of good commitments. Work is good. Family is good. uh, Church activities are good. Community activities are good. Kids sports are good. And so all of those good activities make us brag about being busy because our lives are so filled with good things in them. But when you add them all together, all of those good things actually become really bad. What if somebody responds to that, though, Garland, with, well, if I'm not busy, you know, what am I going to do? I would say if you're not busy, you're going to do your biggest dreams and your highest priorities. Mm. Uh, And I think a lot of times what people lose out on is seeing that our busyness is actually distracting us from the really important things that we want to do. Right. So we just fill our calendars with good activities, but all of those good activities keep us from focusing on the long term of what is it that I want to accomplish? Who is it that I want to be? What are the priorities that I want to put in my life? And so if you're not busy, what are you going to do? You're going to do your biggest dreams and your highest priorities. <laughs> and I love how you kind of reframe the question. It's not so much about what will I do. It's it's really about who do I want to be? Yes, absolutely. Well, one thing, uh, many things, but one that was eye-opening for me uh, as I read your book is your sort of likening busyness to hoarding. Share a bit about that that comparison that you make in the book. I just I just thought this was fascinating. Well, as I was doing research on busyness and really trying to beat busyness in my own life, I ended up watching a television show about hoarding. And I was fascinated by these people who, you know, all hoarding really is, is this tendency to put too much stuff in too small of a place. And the hoarder may say, you know, if I could just get a bigger house I would be able to fit it all in there. But of course, we know if they got a bigger house, they would just fill it with more (laughs) stuff. Well, if a hoarder is a person who has too much stuff, then a busy person is a person who has too many commitments. Mm. We have more commitments in our life than we have capacity to do the commitments. And as I started watching these 
reporting shows, what struck me is each of them really go through five steps to, to declutter their lives. First, they decide that they need to declutter. Then they have to go through a deconstruction phase where they get rid of a ton of stuff. Then someone helps them design, you know, what is the life that you want to live in this house? How do you want to use this space? Then they begin to develop all of those habits to beat the hoarding in their lives. And finally, they can invite other people into their house, which has not happened for so long. Mm. And what struck me is it's really the same process when we try to unbusy our lives. We have to decide to get unbusy. We have to deconstruct some beliefs and habits and commitments that keep us trapped there, design the life we want to live, develop the habits and the calendar to do so. And then finally, we want to draw others into the unbusy life that we have. I love that. Uh, and, and Garland has just just outlined for us sort of the 30,000 foot view of this book, step by step. Decide deconstruct, design, develop, and draw others in. Uh, we're going to dip our toe into the waters a bit of, of each one of these as we go along here. What are some of the, Garland, physical, emotional, and, and relational effects of, of overcommitment in your view? Sure. So let me do those one at a time. So as far as the physical effects of overcommitment is our overcommitment creates stress But it's stress where we never have the ability to recover from the stressful event. Mm. Because as soon as we're done with one busy activity, we go straight into another one. Now, that process of uh, creating that much stress has been linked to multiple physical ailments, including uh, chronic migraine headaches, uh, colitis, diverticulitis, heart disease, uh, just all kinds, about 26 different diseases that it's connected to. So it's having a terrible physical effect on us. Um, And one of the worst things that it does is it prevents us from our immune system from taking care of us. And so there's this amazing trend that's happening called leisure sickness. And it's when a Mm. person goes on vacation or takes an extended weekend and they end up getting sick. And, you know, they'll scratch their head and go, why do I have to get sick when I'm, you know, when I'm supposed to be taking a vacation? Well, your body is finally slowed down enough for your immune system to catch up Mm. and say, hmm, there's problems here. And all the adrenaline, all this adrenaline and cortisol has been covering it up. So there's massive physical ailments. One of the biggest emotional problems we have is is called burnout. Uh, mm-hmm. And the, the World Health Organization uh, last year diagnosed workplace burnout as a, a medical condition. Wow. But it's also an emotional condition where we uh, do not have the emotional fuel to deal with the struggles that we deal with every day. And so a lot of times you'll hear busy people, you know, have one other commitment added to their lives and they'll just go, I just can't handle all of this. And there's this emotional exhaustion that's happening. And then finally, relationally, and this is the one that that really blew me away, mm-hmm. is busyness has been linked to a condition known as depersonalization. And depersonalization is when we actively dislike people that we care about the most. Um, and so, you know, for a parent, they may be busy because they are doing so many activities with their kids and taking them all over the place. Well, at the end of the day, they can begin resenting their children Mm. 
for the very activities that, you know, that they've signed their kids up to do. And so depersonalization, this busyness is something that can actually do significant damage to relationships. I, I was shaking my fist at you yesterday uh, <laughs> when when uh, I, I became convicted uh, in reading that section because I realized I, I often, uh, without realizing it, go that place with my wife. Wow. You know, I feel like uh, that she's getting in my way or slowing me down and I'll I'll be short and blunt and then she'll she'll often respond. I know I'm doing it when she responds with could you say that again, but maybe a little bit more sing-songy? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm doing it again. I need to I need to stop. Yes. Well, well, my my goal is to make people shake their fists at me. So, uh, so mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Uh, talk about the distinction you make in this section of the book, Garland, between uh, achievement and accomplishment. I got a lot out of that as well. So busy people tend to achieve a lot. And what I mean by that is they get to the end of the day and they look at all of the things that they did and they can say, I I ticked off 58 items (laughs) from my list. And, and, you know, it's the number of things they do that make them feel good. And that's what I call achievement. But unbusy people focus on accomplishment. And accomplishment is what are the steps that I took today toward those big dreams and high priorities that I spoke about earlier. Mm. So for achievement, it's about the quantity of things that you get done, whereas accomplishment is about the quality of items that you get done toward those big goals that you have. Well, uh, we spent some time uh, talking about decide, and the next step, as Garland alluded a moment ago, is deconstruct. And if I remember correctly, this is the step that people often want to skip. They want to go from decide to design. So let's dig in a little bit to deconstruct, and in particular, deconstructing inhibiting uh, beliefs, which I think is chapter uh, seven. Unpack what you call the three inhibiting beliefs, Garland, that, that trap us in busyness, and, and how should we respond to each, each one of these instead? So what I found in, as I was doing the research and, and even looking at my own overly busy life hmm. was there were these three beliefs that kept running in the back of my head. And as I interviewed people, they, they just kept popping up over and over again. It was an inhibiting belief of identity that I need to be more. Second was an inhibiting belief of activity. I need to do more. Mm. And third was the inhibiting belief of quantity. I need to get more. And that could be either get more stuff or get more experiences. And these three inhibiting beliefs are, are very much subconscious. We don't think about them. But I'll tell you, uh, as as a read-to-lead listener and as an avid book reader, every time I go to a bookstore, these three inhibiting beliefs pop up. You know, so, so I'll be walking down the I'm aisle. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be walking down the aisle and I'll see this this book about how to be a better parent or how to be a better leader or, you know, how to get in better shape. And immediately this inhibiting belief of I need to be more pops up, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not a good parent. I'm not a good enough leader. I'm not in, in a, you know, good enough shape. And when that happens, it leads to this inhibiting belief of I need to do more. I should read this book. I should implement this program. I, you know, I should change my life. 
And then it leads to, I need to get more. In order for me to make this change, what gym equipment do I need to get? What vacations do I need to take my Hmm. kids on? What conferences do I need to go to? Now, none of those things are bad, but when all of our life is driven by, I need to do more, get more, be more, Hmm. then we are going to create a busy life. And so in order to respond to those, we've got to one, become aware of them. So recognize when we're having that subconscious belief. And then we begin to reject it and say that that, that is not true. So for me, in my own journey to beating busyness, I had to go from uh, this inhibiting belief that my identity is determined by the fullness of my calendar, right? Mm. I, I thought that I was significant because <laughs> my calendar was full. Right. And instead, I had to replace that with what I call an empowering truth to say my significance is not determined by my calendar. It's determined by who I am as a person. And my calendar is merely a reflection of what I value. Mm. Well, let's try to uh, deconstruct some bad habits if we can. I really liked your approach, Garland, to a couple of, of bad habits uh, that we busy people tend to have. And and one of those, I don't have a problem with the first one, but sometimes with the second one, I think. How do you help others respond to, number one, saying yes too quickly and too often, and number two, living without boundaries? I think many of us uh, hearing that wouldn't think that we're living without boundaries, but we probably are. <laughs> yes, yes. So, uh, so yes, as you pointed out, there's two bad habits that really keep us trapped in busyness. One is saying yes too quickly and too often. Busy people tend to, what I say, they, they default to yes and defend their no. Mm-hmm. So as soon as somebody asks them to do something, they will default to yes. Sure, I'll do that. And then if for some reason they think that they can't, instead of just saying, no, I can't do that, they'll start defending it. You know, oh, I've got an obligation at that time or, you know, I'm, I'm kind of busy right now. And as soon as we start defending our no's, then that gives them opportunity to shoot down the defenses. You know, mm-hmm. uh, well, you're busy now. Let's just do it next week. <laughs> so we've got to deconstruct that bad habit by defaulting to no and defending to yes. Mm, So what that means is when somebody asks us to do something or when I have an idea about doing something, a lot of times my default stance is, no, I'm not going to do that unless you can absolutely convince me that I should. So I default to no and then I defense to yes. Uh, I take a little bit more time to say yes. So normally if somebody asks me to do something, I'll say, give me 24 to 48 hours to, to mm. think about that. Um, we think through all of the ramifications of if I, if I do this commitment, what else is that going to cause to, to fall off for me? Um, and so it's, it becomes a different way of thinking. And especially when, when leaders begin to think in these terms, a, a lot of leaders have so many ideas and, and they're defaulting to yes. And the people who are reporting to them are just drowning in new projects. And so what we want to do is help leaders even learn to default to no and say, no, we don't need to do that. We don't need to do that unless the burden of proof is on the yes. So that's the first habit. And then the second habit is that you want to begin building boundaries. 
I don't know about you, Jeff. Did you ever play tag uh, in your neighborhood when you were growing up? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so you know how if you're you're playing tag and everybody gets together, um, if you identify what the boundaries of the tag game are, it's actually very fun, right? You say. Mm-hmm. You can go into my yard, you can go in the next door neighbor's yard, but you can't cross the street. Well, all of a sudden, that's a very fun game. Mm-hmm. But it's it's when we failed to build boundaries as kids that the game became pointless. You know, if you can run to the next zip code, all that matters is that you're faster than than anybody else. But it's not really a fun game. Everybody just quits and goes home. Well, we as a society tend to build our lives without any boundaries. I'm going to work until I am exhausted and fall asleep at my desk. I'm going to, you know, get up as early as possible. We just, and it's especially bad right now with people, some people still in quarantine because they're there are no boundaries in work and life. It's all, you know, <laughs> all contained to your living room. Mm. And so one of the ways to deal with that is there's there's three types of boundaries that I think every person needs. Uh, the first is what's called an end of day boundary. And an end of day boundary is when you say it doesn't matter what else needs to be done at this time all work stops. So for my family, it's right now about 930 at night where we'll say it doesn't matter if the kitchen hasn't been cleaned or the dishes haven't been put away or if, you know, there's still a mess on the floor. It doesn't matter. 930 hits and we're done. Uh, We're done with work. So you have an an end of day boundary and then a, a work day boundary where you make a commitment that at this time, my job stops. So five or 5.30, my job stops. I actually have it worked out with my kids when they're in school that my job stops at uh, 4.15 when they get home mm. uh, so that I can uh, can be with them. And so we build this work day boundary and we build an end of day boundary. And what's amazing, Jeff, is that Parkinson's law says, Work expands to fill the time allotted. Mm. So when we shrink the allotted time we have to do our job, to do work around the house, when we shrink that time, you'll actually get more done and enjoy your life more. You know, I, I have experienced that numerous times, and uh, I've, I've, I've talked to other guests in the past about Parkinson's Law. And I just saw it demonstrated in my life just a few days ago, getting ready to, to teach a master class online and uh, I was given this task accepted this this task and uh, you know with very little notice but I, I was able to make time for it and wanted to do it but I had seven hours in a particular day to get ready for this and I began the work and I thought to myself I'm gonna need every bit of that seven hours to get prepared for this. Then right about the time I started, my wife said, hey, what would you think about my parents coming over and having dinner? And they'll just be here for a couple hours and you'll still be able to make your class. And and I thought about Parkinson's law and I said yes, just as an experiment. And lo and behold, I didn't need seven hours <laughs> to do what I needed to do. I got it done in less than five and was able to, without worry, uh, spend quality time with my, with my in-laws and and casually come back to my desk uh, just a few minutes before the class was to start. It's it's uncanny how true that wall really really is. Yeah, it, it is. And when we begin to put that in place, it can open up so much time and energy for us. Uh, so that's a fun experiment. I'm going to have to start start <laughs> doing that occasionally. <laughs> 
Well, Garland suggests that uh, there are four uh, pillars, he calls them the core four, uh, central to living with purpose, productivity, and peace. Uh, Garland, how can we better design our core four, first of all, and, and why do busy people seem to sacrifice these uh, first? Yes, so the, the core four are relationships, recreation, rest, and reflection. I don't think I've mentioned this. I was doing doctoral research on busy leaders uh, because my doctor had told me that I was too busy and I was killing myself. And mm. so I'm doing this this research on how do highly productive but unbusy people live. And one of the discoveries was that highly productive, unbusy people schedule relationships, recreation, rest, and reflection first into their calendar. And then they build everything else around that. What busy people do is uh, they tend to try to cram those four into the nooks and crannies of life. (laughs) But the problem is busy people have no nooks or crannies uh, in their lives. And so they're just trying to, you know, in, in six weeks or eight weeks, yes, let's get together with their friends. And so it's incredibly important for people to schedule those first so that they can live with purpose, productivity, and peace, and then they build the rest into their schedule. It's funny that a book about being productive and unbusy at the same time doesn't delve into the topic of our calendar until about chapter 13. What are some other ways, Garland, we can we can look at our calendar differently than we typically do? Yeah, you know, when I, when I was first diagnosed with busyness, I was confident that it was a time management issue. Mm. The challenge of that is I love time management, and I had read about 300 books on time management up, wow. at, up to that point. And so if anybody knew how to manage a calendar I knew how to do it. Uh, the problem was I, I was overscheduling. And so I think there are a few ways that, that people need to think differently about their calendar. Uh, first is a calendar is a tool that's designed for proactive thinking, not reactive responses to people. Mm. So a lot of times people will come up to us and say, you know, hey, can we have, can we schedule coffee together? Or can, uh, can you uh, look at your calendar and see if you're free? And all you do is look at your calendar and see if you have white space in there. Well, that's a terrible way to manage your calendar because your white space is there for those big dreams and those high priorities. Mm. So, so first is we treat our calendar proactively. So how do you do that? Well, I encourage you to build time into your calendar first by blocking your core four that we just talked about relationships, recreation, rest, and reflection, block your priorities in your calendar and even block your boundaries into your calendar. So I have it in my calendar that 4.45, I have a, an alarm that goes off that says workday boundary is, is getting ready to, to come, get ready. So we want to build boundaries into that. And then one final way to approach your calendar differently is to take one full day off every single week, right? So, so religious traditions will call this a, a Sabbath. It doesn't matter to me what you call it. What happens, though, is when you block off a full day to disengage from any type of, of work, from any type of chores, mm. then you renew your energy 
And again, going back to Parkinson's law, you actually accomplish more in six days than you would if you worked all seven. My, my wife, uh, to her chagrin, I sometimes like to take two days off, <laughs> Saturday and Sunday. And she's like, but there's stuff around the house that needs to be done. You got to give me Saturday. Come on. <laughs> you know, I can't empathize with you at all there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, I was intrigued by by your ideas around uh, morning routines. Your approach uh, differs uh, from some other popular approaches that I've studied, and and you opened my eyes to some things. In fact, uh, I realized yesterday morning as I was reading this section of your book, I, I was beginning to take exception to what you were saying. Because I was like, no, that's I, I don't agree. But as you explained your process, I'm like, well, I may not agree and I may think my way is better, but the way I'm actually doing it is the way that Garland is describing it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, how can I disagree when that's what I'm really what I'm doing? So I, so my way was to, you know, be very regimented. I've got, I'm one of those folks who has, and not everybody does this or can do this, but I have like a three and a half hour morning routine most mornings. Yeah. And, you know, I have, you know, time stamps next to each one in my morning ritual as to how long they're supposed to take and all of that. But that never happens. It never works that way. And what I'm really doing is more of what you described. So I'd love for you to kind of kind of unpack that if you would. Yeah. So I disagree with the traditional uh, and, and really a popular view of morning routines in, in two areas. Uh, the first is I think a lot of times morning routines, uh, people talk about morning routines like they are highly productive times or they should be highly productive times. Right. And and what, what I have found is the way that I start my day is the way that I will finish my day. And so I choose to start my day with peace first, and then I'll move to purpose and to productivity. So right. I want to create a peace-filled morning routine. Mm -hmm. And if I can do that, then then it's more likely that I'm going to go through the rest of the day with a low level of stress and a high level of focus and concentration. The other way that I, I think most people tend to mistake their morning routine, and you just mentioned it right there, is, is we believe that it has to be highly regimented. Mm. You know, I, I read a book at uh, six o'clock in the morning and at <laughs> 615, I, you know, drink my coffee and at 630, I, it, you know, and it's just this highly regimented process. What I I found though is that I'm just not that disciplined, um, and that creates a lot more stress for me than it does peace. So instead, I recommend that you create a buffet of peaceful activities, and so you identify eight to ten activities that you enjoy doing in the morning, and when you wake up that day, you get to step into doing those at whichever activities you, you want to do. So for me, it always involves coffee. There's never a day <laughs> Amen. That, that doesn't involve coffee. But today's morning routine involved reading a leadership book that I was interested in, whereas tomorrow's may involve doing some mindfulness uh, routines. And so mm -hmm. you'll just pick the two or three activities that day that seem to line up with how you're feeling. And uh, it ends up creating a much more enjoyable morning routine that's still highly purposeful, productive, and peaceful. Yeah, and as I said, I, I I really had just kind of morphed into doing it that way, and just hadn't hadn't admitted it to myself. I guess like like I didn't I didn't want to admit that that's what I was actually doing. Like there was something wrong with doing it that way. But then as I read your book, I'm like, no, that's how I want to do it. That's I like that yeah. better. <laughs> yeah, I, I struggled with feeling guilty for for years because I was like, ah, oh, I just keep changing my morning routine because I can't find what I really enjoy. And then I finally 
realized I really enjoy changing my morning routine. And so that that's what I need to do. So we've covered four of the five uh, steps at this point. The fifth one didn't exist at first. Talk about the importance of, of this fifth step, drawing others in, Garland, and specifically, and I love this, the idea of choosing activities by evaluating your, your family's capacity rather than each individual family member's capacity. When I first started teaching others about getting unbusy, I only had those first four steps. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until I was having a, a conversation with a leader named Kim, and I was celebrating her completion of the first four steps. And I mm-hmm. said, how do you feel about finally getting unbusy? And she said, well, I, I, I feel really lonely. Mm-hmm. And that was not the answer that I wanted or expected to hear. But as she explained it, she had gotten unbusy and the rest of the people around her were still busy, her family, her friends, her coworkers. Mm. And that's when it began to dawn on me that, that there needed to be a fifth step. You've got to draw other people in to your unbusyness. And where this starts is with your family. And unfortunately, more often than not, there's an inhibiting belief that families, particularly in the West, struggle with. Mm. And, and that's this inhibiting belief that each individual in our family should be able to do whatever they can to fulfill their own purpose and their own destiny. And so what ends up happening is families end up scheduling so many activities and each individual can handle the activities that that they're doing. But when you put them all together, the family can't handle all of the activities that everyone is doing. And so we really want to replace that inhibiting belief of thinking of your family as isolated individuals with an empowering truth that your family is a single functioning unit. Mm. So how do you... Uh, and? I encourage people about every 90 days or so to look at your family calendar and to adjust the way that things are. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you, if you've got one of your one of the kids who is involved in soccer or basketball or lacrosse, there's a, a time period to that where for a few months they're going to have practices four days a week and games two days a week. Mm-hmm. Well, that's going to have an effect on what everybody else can or can't do. So make an adjustment during that season to compensate for that sport. And then when that sport is over, you look at the other members of your family and say, okay, now how do we adjust our time so that all of us can do what we want to do, but not everybody has to do everything all the time. Mm. Yeah, and it's easier said than done. But boys, as I read that, I thought, gosh, so many families I know could benefit from just grasping that concept. Because, I mean, I see it everywhere with families thinking that, well, as, as long as each individual person can handle what they're given, then we're okay. But you're right. When you put it all together, it's just, it's too much. It's just too much. It is. And, and I think a lot of times we all, we don't even think about parents as being members of the family. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I know for me that when I'm uh, speaking, that there are certain months of the year where there's going to be more heavy travel than other months. Mm. And so my family knows that I'm not going to be available as often during those times for driving them around or, you know, for other activities. 
So when Christmas time comes and New Year's comes and there's not a lot of conferences that are going on uh, on my calendar, then I can be a lot more present and we can focus a lot more on what they want to, to do. So even parents are members of the family who you have to account for their calendar. As I was wrapping up uh, reading your book uh, just this morning, I was close to the end and I was thinking to myself, you know, I can't wait to meet with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and begin sharing these concepts. And then red flag popped up because I realized that I was all about sharing the process. What I hadn't thought about is something that Garland talks about in his book, and that is the importance of sharing the benefits before uh, sharing the process. Why do you make that distinction, Garland? Well, because we live in a society that tends to value busyness, when you say to a friend, hey, I want to encourage you to get unbusy or to be less busy, you're poking at their significance. Mm -hmm. But instead, if we can say, I've discovered some ways that have helped me become more productive, that have helped me become more purposeful. I have more time, energy, and attention to do the things that I love to do and want to do. Then all of a sudden, people are going to go, well, how did you get to do that? And you can <laughs> say, well, it's, it's actually counterintuitive how I got to be able to do it. I got unbusy. So we share the benefits first yeah. before we share the process of getting unbusy. We hook them and then we reel them in. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> love it. Love it. Well, I've got a couple of questions for you that aren't directly related to the book, but uh, anything else from the book you want to make sure we walk away with? I would say one, one last thing. And so this one actually wasn't in the book. Unfortunately, I thought of it too late. But I would say that when we as a society complain about our stress and our tiredness while bragging about our busyness, it is the equivalent of complaining that you have lung cancer, but bragging that you smoke two packs a day. Mm. You know, it's funny you say that because I was just uh, I was just thinking earlier in the conversation that that I know some people who spend a lot of time complaining about how busy they are, but the things that they're doing are of their own doing. <laughs> yes. So yes. you can't really complain if if you're where you are because of the decisions you made. Exactly. Well, when it comes to reading, you said you love to read, particularly, though, reading to learn. What do you do, Garland, to help maybe retain what you read or ensure that you're going to implement something that you actually want to implement? So for me to retain things uh, on my iPad, every time I start a new book, I create a notebook for that book. Mm. And I'll take pictures if I'm reading digitally or, or on paper. I'll take pictures of quotes that really stand out to me. And then at the end, when I'm finished with the book, I'll go back through and do handwritten notes, again, on my iPad, but handwritten notes for those quotes about what really stood out to me, what I want to change. And if there are any actions from it, I immediately put it into my task list mm. that I will at least come back to and say, do I want to do this? You know, I'm not making a commitment to do it, but I'm at least triggering a reminder that something stood out to me to do. And now, in a, you know, in a couple of days, I'll evaluate, do I really want to do what that suggested? Mm -hmm. Well, for a guy who has read 300 books on the topic of productivity alone, I'm almost scared to ask this next question. But uh, <laughs> what's, a, what's a book or two over the course of your career you've encountered that's left a, a strong impression on you enough that maybe you go back to it again and again and, and, and reread it? 
Yeah, two books that I go back to very regularly. The first is uh, not a productivity book, but it's called Leadership and Self-Deception mm. by the Arbinger Institute. And it focuses on what pride or what they call self-deception, how it hurts our life, our relationships, and ultimately our leadership. And it's a leadership fable, super simple to read, uh, but I reread it every August. Um, I go back to that book and just remind myself of, mm. of how much my own self-deception can hurt the life that I want to live. The second book that I go back to very regularly is The Power of Full Engagement mm. uh, by Jim Lehrer and Tony Schwartz. And that's the first book I ever read that exposed the idea to me that productivity isn't simply time management, it's energy management. Mm. So if I can create rhythms that create more energy, ultimately, I'm going to be more productive. So their work had a big influence on the idea of busyness. And does busyness actually help my energy or hurt my energy? Well, uh, what would you say uh, as you look ahead to uh, what right now is a very difficult to predict kind of time, but uh, as you look ahead to the rest of 2020, what would you say is ahead for you and your team that you're excited about or are willing to, to share? Yeah, so our our team, which is myself and my wife primarily, we are focused on two new books. The first is on discovering your purpose. So if you we're going to live with purpose, productivity, and peace, how can you actually articulate why you're on the planet in a single sentence? And so we've developed the process for that and are, are excited about getting that out to people the second book that we're working on is actually called Uncontainable, and the subtitle is The Seven Habits to Blow the Lid Off Your Life and Leadership. And so in my 20 years of leadership coaching and development, they, these are the seven habits that I've seen trip up most leaders and the areas that they tend to neglect. But if they can focus in on those seven areas, then it's going to really, like I said, blow the lid off their life and leadership. You mentioned seven habits, and I have to take advantage of that opportunity to mention that next week on the show is uh, Stephen M. R. Covey, son of Stephen R. Covey, author of the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. <laughs> Which was the first productivity book I ever read and, and literally changed my life. So I'm, oh, wow. I can't wait to hear that interview. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, the book, again, is called Getting Unbusy. Uh, five Steps to Kill Busyness and Live with Purpose productivity and peace. And I would say one of the best books on purpose and productivity I've ever read. Garland, thank you so much for being a part of the Read to Lead podcast. It is my pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm an avid listener, as I've said to you uh, before. And so this is, this is uh, really thrilling for me. I truly cannot recommend this book highly enough. To dig deeper into it and my conversation with Garland, visit the show notes page I've created just for this episode. You'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 318 for episode 318. If you think this episode might resonate with someone you know, that's the easy to remember link to share. One more time, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 318. I'm so glad you've listened to this episode. If you have questions about it or comments or suggestions or feedback for me, I encourage you to email me directly. That's jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. 
And as I mentioned to Garland just a moment ago, next week we'll be joined by Stephen M. R. Covey, son of the late Stephen R. Covey, and author of the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The 30th anniversary edition of that classic book comes out next week. Thank you in advance if you were one of those that responded to my request for questions for Stephen with this classic book and so many people having been impacted by it. I felt the right way to sit down for a chat with Stephen M. R. Covey was to ask him your questions. So that's what we're going to do next week. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. 